right, everyone. Thank you for tuning in again to Honest Defense. Today, I'm honored to be joined by Dorian Abbott. Dorian is an associate professor in the Department of Geophysical Sciences at the University of Chicago. He recently caused a bit of a stir for a series of videos he posted expressing his reservations about the way diversity efforts were being discussed and implemented at the university. We're here to talk about that today. Dorian, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. So I always like to start by asking people about how they grew up. For some reason, that, that's always fascinating to me. I think it's a good way to kind of color who you are and, and, and your personality. So could you tell me a little bit about, especially what kind of student were you? Like, were you a, a troublemaker? Were you just a good, I, I assume being a professor and, and with your education, you probably were a good student, but personality-wise, what were you like? Yeah, so, well, okay. So I grew up in Maine in a small town and it was really good childhood. I thought this would I this would be in the 1980s and and 90s, and uh, I was just outside most of the day every day. So I really liked sports, and we would play. You know, my brother and I and our friends, we would just play all day, and we could go ride our bikes around town, yeah, and play whatever. We, we really liked playing double. You know, double or nothing, baseball. What remind me that name that sounds familiar, but I can't remember I that. Name. You only got four guys. Okay. Uh, you can, you can go, especially to a little league field. I mean, you know, if you're, not if you're 20 years old, but if you're <laughs> 14 and you can have two guys play in the outfield, one guy pitch and the uh, second base is a force out. Right. So you get a double or nothing. And That's then you right. can have ghost runners and you keep going until oh, yeah. one guy gets out and then you rotate around. We played a lot of that a lot of basketball and a lot of soccer. Uh, in the winters, we played uh, hockey on the, you know, pond hockey and uh, touch football, things like that. And then just a lot of time in the woods, hiking and things like that. So I, that was a kind of childhood. And then my parents, my dad was a carpenter and a, a school teacher. And my mother was a social worker at the school. And uh, they just were very kind and loving and supportive. What were you like as a student? Uh, I, let's see. I think <laughs> probably annoying a lot. Okay. Of so uh, I was very good as a student, but I used to do things like read extra books on the subject so that I could come in and uh, make this teacher look stupid. <laughs> See, I, I used to do something similar where, where like we'd be reading about a, a subject and I, instead of doing the assigned reading, I'd want to read something else on this subject. But for whatever reason, I just, I had this innate rebellion that's like, I couldn't do the reading I was assigned. I would just go and do something related, but different. And I, I can't explain why I did that, but because I loved learning and I loved exploring things, but I hated being told this is what you have to be learning today and this is what you have to be studying. So I would, my rebellion was, okay, I'm, I'm going to learn and I'm going to study, but I'm going to be doing my own thing. Yeah. I had a little bit of that, that <laughs> problem too, but That's you know, right. I didn't get in any serious trouble. Right. Uh, just sometimes I would annoy teachers. I think. <laughs> what got you into the sciences? Well, I was always interested in science from a young age. My, one of my grandfathers was a, inventor he still is he's almost 90 now and he's still working every day in his laboratory and uh he you know he just really encouraged creativity and taught me about science and uh 
and just introduced me to a lot of things about the natural world. And were you the kind of person to, did you like question authority or a lot or just question what you were told? I mean, you, so you like to make the teachers look dumb. I get that. Like, but, but were, did you also like, were you the kind of person who liked to kind of push back on stuff? Yeah, I was annoying. Yeah, I, yeah. I was annoying to a lot of people. <laughs> uh, I didn't like getting told what to do. Right. I like to do what I want to do, how I want to do it. Uh, yeah. I've softened on that a bit, but uh, you know, based on this, the cancellation experience, possibly <laughs> not enough. I, well, again, I, I know that feeling where it's like, okay, you, you kind of grow up and you feel like you're growing out of it and you realize, okay, I got to be an adult. I got to fit into the, the world a little bit. I got to go along to get along to some extent, but it's like, if that's in you, you can't really erase it out of you. Yeah. I mean, my wife, She's interested in psychology, and she was telling me about an experiment that she learned when she was in school after this whole incident. And she said, uh, you know, there was some experiment where they they took the children, young children, under age five, and they, I didn't actually look this up to confirm such an experiment, but this is the story, that they uh, told the children that black was white and white was black, and they convinced this half the class, okay, and then they brought in the other group and then they would say like, look, white is black and black is white. But these are children who already knew what, what right. the colors were. And then the, their peers confirmed it. And 99% uh, of the ones they brought in just went along with it. Yeah. 1% refused that she said, you'd be that weird 1%. <laughs> yeah, but it's true. I mean, there's, there's a million studies like that. There's one, I forget the name of it or, or what school it was, but they, uh, like they, they got a group together and they were having uh, part of the study was like they, they were getting together for dinner. It was like a dinner party. And every time a bell rung, everyone would stand up. That was just, and that was kind of like the, the people who were in on in on the study started it. But every time this bell rung, everyone would stand up. And that was kind of just the habit. And then they would take a couple of those people out and bring in some new people. And anytime a bell rung, everyone would stand up. And so the new people would just stand up and, it, and they didn't know why they were standing up. It was just this noise went off and everyone stood up and then just went back to eating. They, they sat it. back down and started eating again. <laughs> and they, they found that like they, they could eliminate all the people who were initially there who were in on the study and everyone was still, you know, they brought in all new people. Everyone would still just stand up when the sound rang because that's just what they saw people around them doing. So they figured out this is what I'm supposed to be doing. There was no rhyme or reason to it. There's no, no rule that nothing came of it, but it was just they saw what other people were doing and, and they did it. And so yeah. I think that is, that's human nature is that people are going to do what everyone around them is doing. And you're going to have that 1% that's not going to do that. And they're going to be, they're going to be ostracized because you're the weirdo. Yeah. And, and I, I think that's just, that's kind of the burden that that 1% carries in any society at any time, no matter what, you know? I agree. But in science, that perspective has actually helped me a lot because uh, I've been reasonably successful at looking at a field, you know, I've switched around a little bit and I'll go into a field and I can sort of, uh, I'm willing to say something that people think is a little cuckoo. Yeah. And sometimes it ends up being right. Yeah. And usually I think a little bit differently about problems than other people, you know, not hugely differently or crazily differently, but yeah. it, th that nature has helped me, I think a little bit. Well, isn't that the nature of science itself is just, you're supposed to be questioning everything at all times. You're supposed to be pushing back and, and testing new things. That's, 
you know, Copernicus and Leonardo da Vinci and all, you know, every famous Einstein and Newton, every famous person in science was going against 99.9% of accepted wisdom at the time. And, and they, a lot of them were, were ostracized for it at the time. And now we look back and I think, oh, these men were geniuses and, and we lionize them and they're yeah. heroes. But at the time they were, they were nuts. Yeah. So the only, uh, so that is true. Definitely true. Okay. And the only, uh, uh, sort of thing that I would add to that is that you don't hear about all the other people who went against everyone who were nuts. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> especially if you're creative, it's hard to tell when you're nuts right. and when you're not nuts. Yeah, and I guess that's why that's the whole, that's why we have a scientific method. There's a process for filtering that stuff it's a out. About, yeah, right, it's a community thing. Right. And other people check it, and it's right. been successful. But even sometimes. You need to be like, I, I think about art. I think about like, I don't know, someone like Kanye West, who, you know, you know, whether you, you like his music or not, whether you like his, his political views or not, he revolutionized an industry. He revolutionized his genre and he's certainly nuts, but it's like, you kind of have to be nuts to be able to go against the flow for your entire career and to be able to do something no one else has done in some ways. I, I want those nuts to be around. Yeah, and I think the University of Chicago has traditionally been a, uh, a like the psych ward for nuts. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's great. That's a great thing about it. Is that what attracted you there in the first place? That, yeah, well, I decided to go there because actually, okay, so I, w I went as a postdoc uh, and I was mostly attracted to go there by a senior professor. His name's Ray Pierre Humbert, who's, he's now at Oxford. And I just knew his work and really wanted to study with him. So, you know, I was in my mid twenties. And then uh, when I was choosing, when I was deciding whether, you know, to stay on the faculty, the main decision came between Chicago and MIT. And they both are just amazing places that would be yeah. great places. To, so both great choices. And I didn't really know how to decide. And I, there was a woman who came to me in a dream and told me to go to Chicago. And so that's how, that's, wow. how, that's awesome. <laughs> Did you know the woman? Like, was it, was it something you, like, can you picture who, who it was or what it looked like? Or was it just, no, I remember she was an older woman about 50. Yeah. But you could tell that she had been very beautiful when she was young and I was sitting in a lecture hall alone and she just came and smiled and sat next to me and said, go to the university of Chicago. Wow. Was and that so the, yeah. Was that the first time you had a dream like that? No, not the first time. I sometimes have, I have a lot of vivid dreams and sometimes yeah. I have dreams like that. I also do, I work on uh, science problems while I'm asleep in dreams yeah. sometimes. Huh? That I wish so like do, when you work on problems in your sleep, do you wake up remembering them? Do you write them down? How how does that how do you bring it from the dream world to to yeah, the I remember world? the ideas and uh a lot of times they don't make any sense. Yeah. <laughs> but sometimes sometimes they make yeah. sense. Wow. So did when when you told like your family about this dream and you said that's how I'm going to make my decision like did people think you were you were crazy I guess your family probably knows you they know that you're crazy so it probably was par for the course. Yeah, uh, it's funny that you, yeah, you would put it that way. I mean, <laughs> I'm not sure I even told my family about. Oh, that. Okay, 
but uh, I mean, that was a really nice thing about my parents. They're both, uh, they've been very supportive of everything I do. You know, they, I, I basically got to a higher level of mathematics than them at about age 12. And from that point on, they just were like, okay, whatever you want, you know, they don't really care. They didn't really care what me and yeah. my brother did. And they don't think that either of us did better, if you know what I mean. Right. It's just like, whatever you do is is great. Just make sure you're responsible and you work hard and you can pay your bills. Right. And, you know, who cares other than that? And so that's the sort of thing. They weren't taking an active role in you should go this place or that place. They just right. said, do what you want to do. Yeah, that's a gift to have parents like that. You know, I think there's so many people who don't have parents like that and they they get forced into something or or their parents just don't don't ever give them the freedom to make those decisions themselves and they never learn how to be independent. Yeah, I mean that's the that's I think a real key thing. So I think my parents were deliberately trying to encourage my brother and I to uh be independent and to think for ourselves. Yeah. It's scary of course because now there's plenty of things that uh, especially me, I disagree yeah. with that odd. but you know, that's just life. Right. Right. So let's, let's fast forward to, to the, the latest incident. So when did you first start having issues with kind of what was going on in terms of, I, th this all revolves around the hiring process for faculty, right? Well, there's a, there's a whole bunch of things involved. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Let's I mean, go basically. So when I started at, University of Chicago. Okay, so a big important factor for me coming to University of Chicago is that they really emphasize academic freedom. That was something that I, you know, it was important to me. And when I started, and but uh, be, uh, before you go any further, I just want to say from a, a free speech perspective, University of Chicago is really known as being at the forefront of free speech on college campuses. They, they released what's called the Chicago Principles. I believe it's called it the Chicago Statement um, that yeah. a bunch, bunch of universities have adopted just saying that they believe in the principles of free speech and you know Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. I've talked about them a lot on this podcast. They've, they've given Chicago their highest ratings when it comes to, to academic freedom and that sort of thing. So, so they, Chicago does have this reputation at least for being very yes. pro free speech, very pro academic freedom. So sorry, I didn't yeah. mean to interrupt, but I just wanted to give that, no, that thanks. context. No, interrupt. It's your show. <laughs> but uh, yeah, they're number one on the fire, the uh, fire rankings. Uh, I mean, so anyways, so, when I started at the University of Chicago, sort of diversity initiatives involved making people aware of potential biases. And so, for example, when you read uh, uh, we, applications from males and females, the, uh, the letters of recommendation sometimes can be written differently. So be aware of that and try to take that into account. Uh, and trying to increase the Num the pool of applicants. So if we have a job applicant and we get 150 applications and only 10 of them are minorities, let's try to figure out a way that we can get more people in minority categories to apply, which you know I was totally in favor of that. And then providing support for people in groups who might need extra support. So you know, women in science programs, whatever. 
So all of that stuff I was very much in support of, but then there started to be a, a shift that I, I mean, I noticed about 2017. I don't know when exactly that really started. And in 2020, last year, it got bad. Yeah. And so in, two, in that era, the sorts of things that started to happen that were bothering me was there were, we were doing sometimes two job listings in different contexts. So we would have the public job listing that would say, we don't discriminate on the basis of X, Y, Z. Right, which is uh, you're legally obligated under federal law to not discriminate. Yeah, and then we would have sort of an internal job description where we were made to understand that only certain categories would be considered uh, in informal ways in general. You know, not, it wasn't, it it wouldn't come written from the dean, but that's how it would be communicated to us. So I felt that it was kind of dishonest. And so when you say it'd be communicated to you, how was it communicated? By someone who wasn't the dean. <laughs> like the department chair would say informally, this is what the dean told me. Okay. Okay. So it wasn't wasn't in an email. They would kind of come oh, to I have an e- yeah. Okay. Okay. So in one of these situations, there was actually an email, but not from the dean, but from okay. someone else. Okay. So that sort of thing was happening, which I wasn't comfortable with. I mean, so I think when you talk about affirmative action, the, the things I mentioned before, like supporting, uh, giving extra support to people in certain groups, increasing applications from certain groups, that's all affirmative action. I think there's a debate about whether you want to have quotas and whether you want to say we're only hiring this group, okay? And is I, that, it, it, I'm, I'm sorry, it, so when, when they would come to you with those kind of informal standards what was what were the standards was it we're, we're looking to hire someone of this race we're looking to hire someone female well, like what yeah like a woman or minority okay not a okay. white man right just not a white or, man or Ch- not a chinese or white right man. right uh and so i think that's a debate that you could have as a university and and that that's sort of the context of this whole thing is my opinion is that's a debate that that we can have, but we have to actually have the debate. It can't just be like, okay, this is what we're doing. And if anyone says anything about it, then, you know, you're in trouble right? because the worry. So here's the worry. The worry is, so there's sort of two pulls going on. There's people wanting to get more underrepresented people into science, but also not wanting to make them feel like they don't deserve to be there. And there's a tension between those two desires if it's pursued using the types of means that I just mentioned. So anyway, so that was one aspect of this. The other aspect is there were some things, so that's sort of more the official point, but then there were informal things. So we're getting the message like, okay, diversity, diversity, diversity. And the way that filtered down to low level to the faculty on various different admissions and hiring committees that I was on, I heard people say things like, uh, we don't need more Chinese people, we need more X diversity. Okay, and so to me, that was, that was immoral. And, you know, just, it, it's, it's violating the principle of what I think the university is for, to choose the people who are the most merit, meritorious, in their discipline and try to produce knowledge 
as best they can. Also, it just made me feel wrong to be in it, participating in that. Uh, another comment was, this is the most white male application I've ever seen, so we can't take it. You know, this essay is the most white male essay. And I'm just thinking like, what if you said that on a different group? What, what does that even mean in, a, in an essay? Do, do you remember like the specifics of yeah, what, what it Yeah, what it means is basically that particular application. I remember who, what, I remember who applied. <laughs> that particular application was written like, uh, here, here's the grandest problem in the field and here's how I'm going to solve it. So someone who's ambitious right. and who has, uh, you know, a creative and exciting idea is described as white male in a negative sense and the application was thrown out. So to me, that's, that's, that's not what we should be doing. And then there were a lot of other examples like that directed towards Chinese. Uh, so I felt like they were really the, the ones who were really getting this. I mean, it was, it, uh, I guess that bothered me the most. And then the third thing that I was bothered by was it started to become difficult for anyone to talk about any of these issues. And it got really bad in 2020. Yeah. And I remember when Barry Weiss resigned from New York Times, uh, I sent that her sort of resignation letter to, to the department chair and all the former department chairs. And I said, we have this problem at, in our department. I'm a tenured professor, and I'm absolutely terrified to talk about these issues. I walk around in eggshells. I don't eat, you know, I don't, I don't eat lunch in the common area because I'm worried I might say something that someone's gonna like, you know, rip my head right, off. Right, right. And uh, I just feel super uncomfortable. And it's not a good way to run a university and have people be creative. I mean, e even if they're allowed to suppose that it doesn't extend at all into their area of research. If you have to be guarding everything you say all the time, how are you gonna like turn that off and be creative on your science? It's hard. Right. And they all said, oh, say whatever you want. No big deal, nothing will happen. This is the University of Chicago, what are you worried about? And I, I told that to uh, my former advisor and he said, they're giving you the rope to hang yourself with. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And he turned out to be right. Yeah. So, so what happened? So the first thing you did was you sent Barry Weiss's resignation letter, which everyone should read. I mean, I think that was just a beautiful piece of writing that she talked about just yeah. how exactly what you're saying that if, if you have a dissenting voice that you, and you're in any, any one of these, the word that, that some commentators, Michael Malice, I, I don't think Michael Malice invented this term, but he calls it the cathedral, which is this collection yeah. of the, the elite universities, the elite media, the kind of elites of, of both political parties, if you're outside of that cathedral narrative and that point of view that you are shunned, I mean, you are excommunicated and you are considered evil and you are considered, your, your voice just does not need to be heard. And that Barry Weiss kind of wrote about this in her resignation letter from the New York Times. So, okay, so you send this to the, to the faculty they, they say, oh, don't worry about it. You know, this is University of Chicago. We believe in free speech. You're fine. Say whatever you want. What happens next? Well, okay. So, you know, there wasn't, an, we have this department seminar once a week and we, uh, you know, we talk about our science. It's an internal seminar. We have an external seminar too, but this is one just we, 
one of the faculty give a little presentation and another faculty gave a presentation that was citing this guy, Ibrahim Kendi, and it was mostly on diversity stuff. And I felt like it was kind of promoting a worldview that I didn't disagree with. Now, of course, it's fine for him to have that worldview, but that I have disagreement on some of the points. So I asked if the next week I could give a response and he told me no. And so I got annoyed because I felt like I was being, you know, like that it was sort of being censored that I wasn't allowed to disagree. And so I made a presentation on it. When he said no, what was there any anything besides that? Where was it just no? Was there well, any explanation? Okay, so the, the explanation was, oh, you know, and this this is a seminar series that people usually give once a week and uh, once a year, sorry one time per year and you already gave yours early in the year and I said well you know this is a special situation and you know like I talked to some of the other department chairs they're like no that's the old department chairs that you know that's just an excuse that's not the reason it's okay. obviously just that they don't want you to talk about these stuff right they know it'll be combustible right and you know I sympathize with that because the I, I mean like my department chair he's got a really annoying job right now I mean, you know, like having to deal with all this mess right. and he didn't want to have that annoying job and I did it to him. Well, and that's, uh, that's where it really gets, all of this just gets really difficult because yeah, most, most people don't buy into all of, all of this BS and all of this, this uh, intersectionality stuff, but most people just want to go about their jobs and not cause a problem. So they'll say, okay, if, if people are causing a stir about it, fine. You, we'll, we'll go and we'll, we'll include all of your diversity language that you want to have. And we'll, we'll hire based on what you want to say, just to not cause a stir. And, yeah. and then everyone just kind of goes with that flow. So then you're the one person who's like, wait a second, none of this makes any sense. But yeah. the fact is everyone just wants to go about their job and not have to think about any of this at all. Well, so what I learned from this experience is that it's very important to do that <laughs> because you'll find out you're not the one person. Yeah. And um, the other thing is this stuff isn't going to stop unless people start doing it. And if you're concerned for the future of society, you got to be concerned about this stuff because it doesn't lead to good places uh, yeah. when people start putting in policies like this. So, so what happens from there? Well, okay, so I made these, I made some slides. I worked really, really hard. I spent the whole week working on making slides that the goal was to try to be as friendly and convincing as possible while still disagreeing. And I showed them to a lot of other faculty and got feedback. Basically, the main feedback I got was these slides are so benign. I'm not sure anyone's going to even know what you're arguing. Right. <laughs> And then I show, I have a cousin who's like a very progressive democratic guy who works for the democratic party. I showed it to him and we talked for an hour and a half and he said, you know, like, okay, I don't agree with everything you're saying here, but I, I can't imagine this is going to cause a problem. And, and you still, you have links to all of those slides still, and I'll make sure yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyone I, can I, I'll, I'll include those in the show notes of so people, you know, if, if you're questioning what what Dorian's talking about here, you can look at them yourself. So I'll make sure I include those links. Okay, so I made one set of slides, then a few backups. I mean, the goal was to try to start the conversation and then show some more. And then uh, just to give you guys a sense of what's on these. So 
I'm just going to read some of the things that I had written. Let's yeah. try as hard as we can to treat everyone who applies to our department equally and judge applicants only on the basis of their promise as scientists. Let's fight bias in science by working hard to reduce bias, not by introducing it. Let's support women in science by treating women and their scientific ideas with respect. So that's just the flavor of what I was saying in your right. slides. Okay, so. <laughs> so right, and it's the most benign thing you think you could possibly say. I mean, that's exactly, that's what all of us, you know, who are at least a certain age were raised to, that was the ideal, right? Yeah, so that's what's confusing to me. And so, you know, after this incident, I tried to figure out if I was crazy. So I would talk to normal people. Yeah. Uh, just, re you know, regular people and tell them what happened who aren't on a college campus, they just mystified. It's not just like when we grew up, that's just, it's mystifying for yeah. people who aren't plugged into what's happening on campus. And then also the uh, Pew did a, re did a survey on this and they found that three quarters of Americans will say that they value diversity, but also three quarters of Americans say that uh, race, or, or any other immutable characteristic shouldn't be taken into account when a hiring decision is made, even if it results in less diversity. Right. And that particular statement, like I just said it, because of course the way the question is asked in, potentially can influence survey results. But like I just said it, that particular statement is supported by the majority of all races in both parties. So this is, this is not a contentious issue. And the way that I made these slides I was really careful not to be inflammatory about anything, but, but to make my case, how I could make it. And, you know, obviously I made short slides that were supposed to be like five minutes long. So it's not, it's not a, uh, a thesis. Right. Right. You know, so there are plenty so, more arguments that can <laughs> be made, but I just was trying to make a point in a way that would be as friendly. And the goal was to try to make it appeal to progressive types. Right. You know, to make it to make arguments that involved things like people being harmed, feeling bad for people being harmed, trying to have a just society. So that that's how I tried to orient the arguments that I was making. Right. And also to sort of show that the policies that are being advocated, the consequences have to be thought through, not just you know, for the people who are being harmed because they're not being selected, but also for the people who are being selected because, because of this issue of if you have different standards, what does it say to that person about their ability to compete without different standards, et cetera, et cetera. So, so you made these slides. What did you do with them? Well, I put them on YouTube. Okay. I, so I have a YouTube channel that I use for like distributing class material, essentially. And I have one stupid uh, climate change video where, you know, me and some two other professors made a video about climate change. So that's the, that's the content of this. And the reason I did that was it was a way that I could distribute that material without uh, having a huge file, just a link. Right. And I, at the time, I just didn't think that I, I thought it would be viewed by the people in the department and also like a few uh, you know, I sent it, it was a way I could send it to some other people around. I didn't think it would be viewed by a huge number of people, which was a mistake. <laughs> so, so what happened from there after you published the, the video, did the department see it? Did, 
did they say something to you or when, when did it first start becoming an issue? Right away. So like, I wasn't paying too much attention to it. I made, so then I made my other videos, you know, cause I was planning to do some other videos. So I made those and I posted them and then on the same, on the same, along the same vein. Yeah. Similar thing. So like I had one video, just a general overview. One video was on the purpose of a university, which, you know, has actually been studied at the university of Chicago. There's a report on it. And it, the purpose is to produce knowledge and to pass it on to students. Okay, that's it, the purpose of a modern university. And then one specifically about uh, male, female sex in science and how we're treating males and females. And then one was about something called the whole of the more, which we could talk more about later, but this is my basic ethical and moral objection to treating people as members of groups rather than as individual humans worthy of dignity and respect. And so that was it. And then, yeah. And so I posted those and at some point, this was over the weekend. And at some point people started sending me on like Twitter, things from Twitter of people uh, basically mischaracterizing what I was saying and saying I was a terrible person and all these different types of uh, uh, insults and stuff like that. And my attitude was like, whatever right you know they could say what they want on twitter right uh and just just so i have the time frame right this was back in november of 2020 yeah, yeah, right november, okay. yeah okay yeah so anyways that's that's the basic story and then one thing that really bothered me about the twitter stuff was a number of people were saying things like oh he's harming people he's harming women and uh Bipoxes, bipox, something like that. Um, that that's the acronym for I forget what it stands for, but but basically minorities. Yeah. Right? So yeah. yeah. So he's harming them, and I just couldn't understand. I couldn't wrap my mind around that argument. How someone could make such an argument. So basically, instead of trying to, because first of all, clearly the context of this was I was trying to help people in all groups. And second of all, the idea that you could get harmed by someone making an argument at a university was so strange and foreign to me. I just didn't even know what to make of it. Right. Uh, yeah, this is where things really have shifted. I, I, I think that's the big line. And, and you said, you know, you think it's kind of 2017, you saw it starting. There's a book by uh, Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff, again, from I FIRE. Yeah, uh, Coddling the American Mind. You recommended that to me. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it, it talks about all of this. They kind of pin it around 2013, I think, is the year. They say things started getting weird. But but yeah, it's it's all within this few years of time frame that, to me, the biggest thing is, is when they started equating saying a message like like what you're saying with actual violence. I mean, they, they say that's just as much as just as bad. You saying what you're saying is just as bad as you physically so, harming them. So the problem with that move is that that justifies the use of actual violence. Right. And, and I think we've seen that around. It, making that mistake, when you make that move, it, it is a mistake. When you make it, the problem is that it justifies violence. And 
the whole idea of debate and argument is that it's somewhere between just going along with the other guy and punching him in the face. Right. It's a way that you can settle things in an agreed-upon way following you know, reason and rationality. And when you abandon that, it's a very dangerous place to go as a society. So that book by uh, Lukianoff and Haidt was recommended to me, and I read it you know, since this incident. And one interesting thing was they talk about, I think they call it iGen, the generation that grew up with iPhones and the people who are really ensconced in the most kind of radical ideas around this stuff. And it dates them to people who are born after 1995. Right. And what's interesting is that would make them 22 in 2017. And that's when they start coming to grad school. Yeah. And um, they talked a lot about... uh, 2017, the riots at Berkeley about over speakers. And one of the graduate students who was kind of the ring, one of the ringleaders of this whole affair was from Berkeley class of 2017. And so it's really mixed up in that, in, in what they're talking about in that book. And maybe it would have been good if I had read that before. I read Height's book, The Righteous Mind. Previously, yeah, that's another good one. Enjoyed that. And actually, that was part of how I tried to design my arguments, trying to make things project onto, I think what he calls moral matrices of the right. Lab. Right. Uh, part of the problem is when you try to, uh, you try to come at it in good faith like that and with logic and rationality and they just reject all of that. I mean, they, they say that's, that's part of logic and rationality are part of this biased system. And so when you try to bend over backwards, I, I, it seems like I get, you know, I've, I've talked to a number of people now who have been in a similar situation as you, and they're all very thoughtful people that are trying to come at it in good faith and trying to present it in a way that, that everyone can understand and is fair to everyone. And they get bulldozed because that's, that's just not, you're not fighting on the same plane. Yeah. Well, okay. So there's this little difference between my story and the story of, uh, University of Central Florida and University of North Texas that you've had on your show. And that's that uh, I sort of won in the end. And the reason, the main reason... Yeah, so wait, wait, let's not, let's not fast forward. I don't want to fast forward too fast. So, so let's go back to... So this gets out on Twitter. I assume it's probably one of your students or former students who subscribed to your channel, saw this video, posted it on Twitter. It well, no, I mean, I sent it to the department. And so okay. at that point... It, got started getting passed around so someone from the department you think put sent sent the initial do you know like who how initially like no set fire I mean, on twitter no and it doesn't really matter yeah it's, you know i i put it on youtube so right it's you know it's, it's out there like you complain about people right. spreading it around that's right fine. right right i thought but, it would get spread around a little but it would make people think and start a conversation right so how did it oh go ahead go ahead so then the, but the real issue is when it came off Twitter and it went on and it became like this letter of denunciation. Right. Where they, the people who organized it, I mean, they, it was just an outrageous list of demands about things that they wanted to have happen to me and the university that basically would have crippled my ability to teach and do research. Uh, and they wanted, I mean, the really disturbing part was they wanted to 
figure out, prevent me from being on any committees where I could have any sort of influence on who gets hired and then figure out everyone else in the department who might think like me and prevent them from being on committees. And they wanted to have everybody re-educated on diversity stuff. And then they wanted to have all of our uh, rules about hiring people ripped up and new rules made where you would be hiring based on diversity, not on scientific ability. I, I, I mean, I mean, this is McCarthyism like said, everyone on who's in a class, Everyone who's in a class with me should be able to not take the class and get an A in the class. Everyone who's a teacher, so I teach a big class. I have often 10 or more teaching assistants, graduate student teaching assistants. Anyone who's assigned to be my teaching assistant should not have to be my teaching assistant and should get paid for it anyways. <laughs> and just do nothing and get paid. I mean, it was just, it was cuckoo stuff. Right. But then a bunch of people signed it. A lot of the uh, graduate students and uh, postdocs signed it. Did professors and, sign it? No, I was lucky that I avoided having professors sign it because that's that's really rough when your colleagues turn right. on in public like that. Right. But the um, yeah, so the that was that was the letter, and I can't, you know, I just don't know what was happening in those people who signed its mind. There are definitely some bad actors involved here, uh, but there's a lot of students who are just terrified. Yeah. And, you know, could you really blame them if they're coming after a tenured professor like this and then they come over to you and they say, are you going to sign our letter right. or not? Right. <laughs> you know, what are you going to do? So I just have no idea who's who, who thinks what, who signed that letter. And right, I'm right. willing to forgive them all. Wow. Uh, so this letter was addressed, was it addressed to the head of the department or the, yeah, the, basically dean? the head okay. of the department? Okay. Yeah. And so, so he sees this letter and what happens then? Uh, how does the department respond? Well, so, I mean, you know, the one thing that I didn't really appreciate was, so, I mean, really what has, my recommendation for any department chair, dean, provost, president, is if this kind of is issue comes up, right from the beginning, just say, look, we have academic freedom here and we're not doing anything. And just squelch it. Yeah. You know, people might moan and yell for a little while, but that's going to be the end of it. Yeah. And ultimately, that was the end of it in my case. And so our department chair, he was kind of like, well, there's two, you know, he's doing this both sideism. There's two sides to everything. And I understand why people are hurt. And he should have just said, look, you're at the University of Chicago. Get tough. Someone's going to make an argument. You disagree with it. That's fine. Come up with a counter argument or just ignore it. I think that that's the appropriate way to deal with a situation yep. like that. So it's so I think he sort of encouraged them by doing this both sideism a little bit. And it was just a situation where there just are, there really aren't two sides. I mean, I agree a hundred percent that anyone should be able to disagree with the points I was making. But in terms of the letter of denunciation and the Twitter mobbing and stuff, there just there weren't two sides about that. There was one side that was obviously acting in an immoral and, and unjust and an unfair way. And that has to be like the adults in charge have to say, look, that's the situation, guys. So yeah. What's, and then what... the other thing was the department chair in astronomy also, he was 
he was definitely worse where he was he sort of sent a letter saying i can't believe anyone would still have views like this in 2020 and we you know this shows how much work we still have to do on diversity so it was just like oh please don't please don't come for me right don't come for me you know it's just such a weak uh, and, the, and, and the views are that hey we should treat everyone fairly and and equally and based on merit that's that's the crazy views that no one should have in 2020s is what he's yeah, saying exactly that's the problem and so those two i think my department chair i feel bad for him and i put him in a hard situation i have i feel like he could have done something a little different that would have prevented this from getting so out of control just by putting you know being realistic from the start. What what was going on in your head? What was going on in your head at the time when the letter first started circulating? I mean, are you are you worried you're going to lose yeah, your job? I, or- I mean, I was worried. I was nervous. It's not like you, you don't go through an experience like this, you know, stone cold. Yeah. Um, did so, you try to like? Did you try to stay off of Twitter? Like, like were were you trying well, to? So I had recently made a Twitter account where. <laughs> I made a Twitter account because I was so upset by 2020 and I was so upset by the rioting in Chicago and, and feeling like the way that it was getting discussed at the university and like in the New York times was so unrealistic. And I would ask, and, and, and some other things that had been going on. And I, I just wanted to make a Twitter account with positive messages that would just be about, you know, working hard and being happy for what you have and being grateful and uh, stuff like that. So I had recently made one, but I didn't know enough about how it worked to like go find people writing things about me. Right. So other people sent me these. <laughs> Great. Thanks. But, but anyways, yeah. So the, so I was that, was that like, I, I, I feel like if, if I were in that situation, I wouldn't want anyone to send me anything. I don't want to see this stuff. Like, I feel like that's a really obnoxious thing to be like, hey, did you see this? Did you see this? Did you see this? Well, I think they were concerned. They were friends yeah. who were concerned. Yeah. And uh, I, I just feel like I'd have to say, hey, guys, guys, I, like, I know this is going on, but please, I, I, don't, I don't need to see every single thing that's coming in. Yeah. So, but my wife really helped me. And she's, she was born in Ukraine in communist times. And, uh, I mean, part of when this was all before I, before I did this, I told her I had made these presentations and she said, uh, you are, she said, you think there will be trouble if you show those to people? And I said, what do you mean? And she said, what you've told me sounds like socialist times. And, uh, when people disagreed in socialist times, it didn't go well for them. Right. Right. And that actually made me say, like, well, we're not, that's not acceptable in yeah. America. I better put those on and see what happens. But anyway, so she said, the first thing she said to me was, like, I don't care if you lose your job, I'll move wherever you have to go. She said, um, I know what it's like to not have enough to eat and to not have clothes to wear. And I know that in this country, I don't have to worry about that. So I don't care what your job is, but you know, you just got the, tears in my eyes from that. So yeah, so, and, and, I don't care what job you have. You don't have to be a fancy professor. I know that we'll yeah. make it. That's beautiful. Yeah. And, and she also told me to just play out everything in your mind, the worst case scenario and show yourself it's not so bad. 
wow. and you can make it. And so that's what I tried to do. That's amazing. That's, I think that's the only way to get through something like that, right? <laughs> is to have someone that strong next to you. Yeah. She's great. What, one of the, well, I, I think one of the, the things that really stirred the controversy was you, you made a reference to, and, and you said this earlier, and I always forget how it's pronounced, the, the Holodomir? Holodomor. In, Holodomor in, in yeah. Ukraine. Can you explain that? I'm not sure that really stirred the controversy. That oh, was, okay. That was okay. pretty much after I'd already dug myself into a hole. Okay. <laughs> that was the last you... video where I was trying gotcha. to explain <laughs> why I have this objection. Okay, so the reason, I think that, is a really an issue that people should be studying right now for the first reason that um, that people don't know about it enough. So like we know about some of these genocides, we know about uh, the Holocaust. Everybody knows about that pretty much. Uh, some people know about the Armenian genocide. You know, some people have heard about the Rwanda genocide few other things, but there's actually a whole bunch of other ones. And the whole of the war is one that we don't know about, but it was one where almost as many people died. Well, depending on how you count it, a similar number of people died as the Holocaust. So it's somewhere between a few million and 12 million. A lot of people died. And uh, what happened was the reason I think it's something relevant today is that there's two reasons. The first is this is after the Russian Revolution. And what had happened in the late 19th century was that the, the serfs were basically slaves. Uh, the only difference with a, with a slave is that serfs are bought and sold with property. So you, you would buy this village and you get all the serfs with it. Instead of like, you wouldn't like sell a serf. And the serf goes with the village. It's like a whole package deal. But other than that, they're slaves. Okay, they got freed and they became peasants. And some of those peasants worked hard and were able to make their own farms and to get just a little bit richer. I mean, they're, they're not like rolling in the dough, right. but they've got their own farms. They own some private property. Okay. And they were really bad for the communist story because it was like, here are these guys who are supposed to be so oppressed and somehow they've, they're making it and they're doing okay. And so what the... Soviet socialists did was they just decided that we're going to call these guys kulaks. And it's sort of a made up word. We're just going to apply that to all these people. And we're going to say that they must have gotten their money by oppressing other people and that they have a special privilege. So even the language is very similar to what's being used today. And then what happened was, and so these, these socialists, they said, they thought they were doing something really good. They really believed that they were making the world a better place. Progress. But these kulaks were getting in the way. And so what they had to do was go take away all the food from the kulaks. So they took everything and then in the fall and then in the winter, everyone starved to death. But then the other reason that I think that it's connected to today is that a independent journalist, a Welsh guy, Jones, reported this. He traveled through the region and he reported this, okay? And then the New York Times had a reporter based in Moscow who was sort of embedded in the regime. And because he was embedded in the regime and because the New York Times, for political reasons, supported the regime, they attacked this guy and said that the story was all made up 
had had said there's oh there's no big there's nothing happened over there it's no big deal and so that's a big part of why a lot of us haven't heard about it today yeah because it was intentionally repressed by people in one of our major uh you know news organizations for political reasons and so i think there's just there's a really close analogy to a lot of the language and the things going on today and that's why i think people should be aware of this situation and the and consequences of, of, of this sort of thinking and of this sort of cover-up of what's going on. And there's a great book on the whole of the more, and I think you even included it in your Red slides. Famine. Say it again. Red Famine by Apple. Red Famine. That's right. Yeah, yeah I read that years also, ago. So there's also a, um, a movie, if you just want to spend two hours, it's called Mr. Jones. Okay. From 2000. Have I haven't seen that. I'll have to watch that. Yeah, it's... It, it's amazing. There's so many stories about what was going on with the Soviets that we don't hear about for you know, all sorts of reasons. But it, it is it's scary when you look at the parallels to what's going on now. And if you, if you want to call it McCarthyism, you can. You know, that's that's the way that I you ex can explain it to people on the left is like, you know, when McCarthy was having these these tribunals and calling out people in Hollywood and everything for being for being secret communists and. Uh, it happens throughout history that innocent people get thrown under the bus because of whatever movement is coming through and has taken hold of of the collective psyche. And when you when you allow that to really run wild, what that can do to to again to innocent people just trying to feed their families. Yeah. Uh, to bring it back to your story, okay. So so you're you you're the head of your department is is kind of playing this both sides thing. Is he is he like releasing public statements? Like when you say he's playing both sides, who's he playing both yeah, sides to? Yeah, he's writing to? emails to the department. Okay, okay. It's sort of saying, you know, like, oh, I know a lot of people are hurt by postings on the social media and blah, blah, uh, by what one, one faculty member posting things on his social media account, YouTube. Right you know things like that okay so right he wasn't like calling you by name but it's like okay we we know who we're all talking about here that kind of thing yeah yeah and, you know yeah so again if i were department chair i would just say look this is university of chicago free speech rules here uh it's just that's you know you got to be tough to be yeah. here yeah. and and in this particular case there's nothing even close to inflammatory being said. So right. you know you have to be tough. <laughs> right. Well, and that's, I mean, you, we've seen the playbook now that it's like, if you just stand up to it, yeah, you get, you get hit by that, that wave of, 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 it, it, you know, uh, upsetness or whatever, whatever that word, the word, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, but you, that, that first wave of people who are offended by whatever it is. And if you just stand up and say, Hey, calm down. We're not going to fire the guy. He hasn't said anything crazy. If you want to disagree, disagree. But we're, we're not going to we're not going to act on this insane letter. They'll be upset for a couple of days and then they they move on because they really don't care that deeply about you specifically. It's just this movement that they want to be a part of. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, there's no, do you know about Kip Barker at Harvard? I don't think so. Yeah, so he's a professor at Harvard. He's a lieutenant lieutenant colonel in the army, I think, uh, like in the reserves, and he served in Afghanistan. And some of his uh, colleagues in the army became police officers, and they developed a particular policing technique that had its origins in, uh, in sort of 
anti-insurgent techniques that they learned in Afghanistan and possibly Iraq. And it's called C3. I don't remember what it stands for. But the basic idea is use data and you know, involve the community in the policing, use the community to help figure out who the real bad guys are, uh, work on community development, things like that. Okay, so then they wanted to, you know, he's, they're doing this somewhere in Springfield, Massachusetts. This guy is at Harvard, Kit Parker. And he wanted to do a class which would help them, the police, analyze their data so they don't have the technical skills to analyze the data they've been collecting. It's been running for five or 10 years. And the class work would be to analyze the data and then to produce a report on whether it was good or not, with okay. no, going in with no assumption that it was good, okay? Right. And he got hit with one of these. And the dean behaved absolutely reprehensibly, the dean at Harvard, the, the dean of engineering. And this is the engineering dean. Right. You know, it's not like the dean of, of uh, cuckoo leftist, right. uh, you know, so, sociology or something. And so he basically threw the guy under the bus, apologized for everything, said, you know, the, the we'll do better thing. Right. And uh, canceled the class. And so anyways, but, but Parker, he just laid low. Yeah. He, you know, he stayed out of trouble. He laid low. And then slowly it started to come out that the people in that community were really upset about this and that they're the ones who want this to happen. Right. And, um, and now those cancelers look really bad. And so they're going to redo the class in the fall. Oh, that's we got through it, but it's, it's an example where some of these examples are really harmful to poor people who need help. Right. And this is one of those examples where the effect of this cancellation was there's a program that's actually helping a community that's right. helping the people who are trying to build the community and start businesses and not have drug dealers and not have their kids getting shot. And this, these guys tried to cancel him because he's a military officer because it's about the police and because right. he's white. Right. And it's just really counterproductive. That's yeah. And I think that's what people need to wake up to that. It, this isn't just happening in gender studies departments and that sort of thing. It's happening now. I mean, your story is one of them. It's happening in, in the real sciences and it's uh, happening in the real world. It's I'm, I've talked to, I have a lot of friends who work in corporate America and it's every major corporation in the country is going through this right now where, you know, truth and rationality and reason are, are losing out. But so you say you, you eventually won. So how did you win? How did we yeah, go? Okay. So what happened was, so all this is happening. I'm, you know, like, oh, uh, this is what's going on. I don't know what's going on. I mean, I really stepped into it. I didn't know yeah. what was going on. I didn't, I didn't know the playbook. Like you said, I, I just had no idea what I had gotten into, but people started contacting me and saying like, you know, I got about 500 people writing me letters like, oh, thank you for speaking out. And that was from people in the department from uh, from other students at the university, from parents, from alumni, from random people around the world. But some of them were from people who actually could help me. And so one of those is Colin Wright. Uh, he's an editor at Quillette. 
And one of those is uh, Toby Young, who's also an editor of Colette, and he's the head of this thing called the Free Speech Union. And they said, we really want to do something about this. And I'm like, why? <laughs> they said, well, there's two reasons. Number one, you didn't, you didn't do anything. Right. <laughs> Everybody who sees this is going to, it's a perfect case because everyone's going to see it is just going to say like, what is, right. what is this about? Right. You know, like there's just nothing here. There's no there there. Like, you know, like sometimes people get canceled and it's at least iffy. They right. at least said something that was a little bit contentious. Uh, and then the second thing is the University of Chicago is supposed, like you said, it's supposed to be like, the free speech place. And every student who came there knew that and came there knowing that. And if this kind of thing happens at the University of Chicago, then the, the, the war is over. Right. Like, you know, this is just like the new normal and no one can speak on anything anymore. And so the, they felt like it just has to get stopped. And so they organized a petition on change.org and about 13,000 people signed it, you know, right away within a few days. And the petition asked the president of the University of Chicago, Zimmer, who's one of the biggest supporters of academic freedom in all of academia. And to, it, it asked President Zimmer to affirm our free speech principles. And he did do that. He, uh, he, he made a, a short statement. It's like four paragraphs basically saying, look, we, we uphold academic freedom all faculty have the right to speak on the issues of the day, however they want to, in whatever format, and they won't be punished for it. Uh, you know, that's it, basically. Yeah. Uh, and so one thing that's happened in a lot of these situations is someone will, you know, a president will say something like, we support freedom of speech, but Professor X is a big jerk and exactly. racist and whatever right. else. Not and that or, speech. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, technically we support it, but it, so that's <laughs> that's really, I think, counterproductive because it's yeah. not. That's it's not, not free speech. It, it's not in, you know, there's it's not encouraging people to speak up and have different opinions because. Right. So, let me give you an example. Have you ever heard of the book by Robin D'Angelo, White Fragility? Yes, I've, I've so, read I've read pieces of it. So since this uh, episode, I've been reading that. I read a chapter a week with one of my friends, and then we discuss it. And we've been shocked at how poorly argued the book is. So it's what I call the argumentation is incorrect, and a, there's a fractal nature to the incorrectness. So at every scale you look at, it's incorrect. If you pick a sentence in the book, almost at random, you'll find that it's not logically consistent. Right. If you look at a paragraph, you'll find that the paragraph doesn't make sense. And then if you look at a chapter, the same, if you look at the whole book, it doesn't fit together. It doesn't make sense. Okay. Then if you look at the, if you chase down the citations, which probably most, I mean, one thing I've noticed is probably very few people have read this book. So a lot of people have bought it, but I don't think many people have read it because I don't think they would be fooled by this. So then you look at the references in the back and the references frequently aren't really uh, supporting the thing that she's saying when she references it. So maybe it's something vaguely similar, or maybe a common thing that she does is she'll make a semi-quantitative statement and she'll have a reference to something with no quantitative evidence. 
it's just another person's opinion. So it, it's, it's, it's so, it's such a poor book. And I'm thinking, how did this happen? How could someone produce a book like this? And my theory that I eventually came up with is her, her uh, worldview says that if you disagree with her, then you're white fragile and she doesn't have to listen to you. Right. And so what that means is no one ever criticizes her. And I thought like, what if I came up with my scientific theories and I said that if you disagree with me, I'm not going to listen to you. Like think about how crappy they would be. I would right. come out, I would write a book like this that it just crappy because what happens is I come up with a scientific theory and even if it's good, it starts out cuckoo and I show it to all my students. I show it to all my friends. We, we argue about it for a long time. Then I go and give a talk at it at a, uh, at an academic conference and people say, you're a big dummy. You forgot to include this. And I say, Oh crap. And then I go back and include that. And by the time I actually published a paper on it, you know, like I've got a pretty solid argument, even if it turns out to be wrong, it's right. a good argument. That's because I listened to the other side. And so I forgot why I started talking about this, but I think that's a big issue that's going on now. Yeah. Just the issue that if, even if you disagree with me, you should want to hear my argument so that you can improve your argument. Right. That's right. the basic point. Exactly. Right. And, and I'm not exaggerating what I said earlier is that to them, to this, to this movement, they think that the scientific method is based on a, a whole system of bias. And so the idea of logic and rationality to them isn't valuable because it's it's all based on this bias system that we've created. And so that's why they are able to come up with these arguments that if you're trying to look at it through the lens of logic and rationality, doesn't make sense. Well, it's because they reject that lens. And yeah, so I guess, so first thing is it's not just the scientific method. The method I just described applies, it should apply in all academic fields. Yeah. The idea that you propose an idea and that it's criticized and rationally debated. It's not just the scientific method. So right. in the scientific method, we are ultimately subjecting our ideas to empirical falsification. But in mathematics, that's not necessary. Uh, but they still follow this, this sort of a methodology for arriving at the truth, for example. Um, but the other thing I would say is there's a kernel of truth often in what's being said. And so you could say, you can point, you can certainly point to instances where science has been used to justify oppression. Yeah. Uh, they're pretty few and far between at this, in the 21st century. Uh, but you can find instances of that, but the mistake is the move to take that from saying that this sometimes happens to saying that this is the underpinning of the entire institution. And I think, I don't know, I feel like if people took a step back and thought about it, they would realize that that's just doesn't make sense. Right. But, but an issue that's come up for me. So one of the things that I, do you know what the GRE is? Yeah. Right? Yeah. The, the, the entrance, entrance exam, exam for graduate school. Yeah, so a couple years ago, all of a sudden, everyone started saying like, oh, we need to drop the, CR the GRE. The GRE is biased. Okay, so then I, I said, okay, I'm a scientist. I can read the papers on the GRE. So I read the papers. What do they actually say? You know, not just one random paper saying something, but you look at the whole literature. 
and the meta-analysis analyses that have taken into account the whole literature. Well, what they say is it's, ex it's extremely hard to predict who's going to be successful in graduate school. However, one of the best predictors is, is the GRE exam. And in fact, you get a correlation of like 0.4 to 0.5 in terms of GRE and uh, how you do in grad school. Not only that, but the exams have been explicitly tested for bias and they find no bias. So some groups perform better and some groups perform worse, but the same line of fit predicts the performance of both. Oh, interesting. So the groups that perform worse on the GRE have worse outcomes in graduate school. So there's no bias. A bias, you would have to say people who do worse on the GRE do the same in graduate school. That would represent a bias. So all of these claims that are being made are just false. And so then I- But isn't, isn't their claim, well, well, the entire graduate school system is biased. So, so the bias of the jury just lines up with the bias of- Depends of who's school. making the claim exactly. But some people might say that. So then I, um, I asked some of the people saying we should drop the GRE, why do you think that? And they would almost always say, uh, I read it on Twitter. This is one of the reasons I wanted to make a Twitter account to actually put some positive stuff out there. And so then another thing they would say is I saw a paper on Twitter that showed it. So then I would go look at the paper and the paper would be one small study that disagrees with the whole literature. Right. And then often that study, if you follow up on it, it has uh, letters written on it uh, saying the methodology was incorrect. You know, someone writes a letter and says, that paper was published, but the methodology was incorrect. Right. And so the most basic uh, tools of scholarship weren't being used by people that I know are good scholars in their field. And so that was disturbing to me because it showed how really smart people who know how to, how to uh, do research and have access to all of these journals. Not everyone has access. You know, the University of Chicago pays for me to get access to all these journals so I can look at all the actual original studies and I can read them for myself. Right. And even people who have that privilege aren't bothering to look into the things that they're saying. It's a real problem. That e even, even our leading academics at a major university are just looking to confirm their own biases. I don't know what, yeah, I don't know what, so looking to implies intent. And I don't really know what the intent is or what's going on in their minds, but that's what's happening. Yeah. <laughs> That's the result. So for you at least, is is everything back to normal? Are you back to are you able to just teach your classes like normal now? How's how's your daily life? Well, I'm after? not teaching this winter. Okay. Uh, I'm teaching again in the spring and we'll see I, okay. what happens. But yeah, I mean, you know, it uh I think there's a lot of people who are mad at me. Yeah. And, and probably will stay mad at me. And that's okay. Uh I don't know what, you know, it's that's their right. But not, have you heard, have you, are they, are they planning to do anything else now, you know, uh, send another letter or, or I don't know. No, I mean, the president's statement on this pretty much squelched the whole issue. Good, I mean, good. I don't think, I, I, so, you know, like, obviously now I know that uh, I'm a target. Right. And so I'm going to be careful. <laughs> right. Uh, but but I, it seems like this issue is over for now. But yeah. so that was why I was bringing up that it's, you know, some of the people you've interviewed, I mean, I guess ne Negi, Negi. Yeah, Charles Negi. Uh, I, they're now talking about 
I just saw an article, I think that a week or two ago, they're talking, I, I don't know if they did fire him yeah, they or fired. They're going, they fired him. They yeah. Fired him. Yeah. Since your interview. And so like some people have gotten this a lot worse and yeah. then uh, at North Texas, I'm blanking on the name. I actually, I've, we've talked. Oh, oh, the, the music theory professor. Um, yeah. Shanker studies. Yes. Oh my gosh. I, I feel so bad now. I can't remember his name, but yeah, yeah, yeah. That was one of my earlier episodes. I should just a blank. I, I sometimes I have trouble with names, but uh, so basically he got really railroaded by the university and by his faculty colleagues and stuff. And he's actually suing everybody. Right. I, was funny. I know. I, I love him. He's a fighter. He's great. Yeah. But um but yeah, so it's Timothy great. Jackson. Sorry, Timothy Tim. Jackson. Sorry, Tim. Yeah. But in my case, it's, uh, I think it's good to show people a success story to say, like, it really didn't take that much from the administration. And they just didn't really, it's not like they paid a price for it. If anything, I think their reputation has improved. You know, yeah. most people who, valued the University of Chicago, when they see the University of Chicago stand up for academic freedom, they value the University of Chicago more. Right. So it's a win for them. And I think if more people could see that, it'd be useful. And there are groups starting to deal with this. So there's a group that's being founded that's based in Princeton called the Academic Freedom Alliance. And this is going to be their issue, trying to sort of turn the tide on this. Uh, it, you know, it's, it's one of these things where you can, you know, if you're a normal guy and you hear about like these professors arguing about their stupid stuff, it's sort of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't really care. Right. But the problem is that this is seeping out into the rest of society. You yeah. know, like the New York times is doing this now. You can't trust what you read in the New York times anymore because they've been infected by this. And that's a real problem. And it's a problem that's radicalizing our society. It's radicalizing the left and it's radicalizing the right in response to the radicalization on the left. So all summer, this cuckoo stuff led to riots, unrest, violence. And then the response was riots and violence. Right. It's uh, on the right. And so, you know, it's a real problem when we, when this stuff gets out of control and people are disconnecting from reality. Uh, and disconnecting from reason, which is yeah. what, which is which is what's happening to a certain degree on campus. Well, you know, and I hope that people do follow Chicago's lead. They they have been a leader on all of this stuff when it comes to free speech. So I'm glad they're there, and I'm glad that they realize. I think so many of these schools just feel like they have to give in to whatever the students are saying. That it's their job to just serve the students, as opposed to educate the students and to turn the students from from children into adults who know how to face the world and know how to address controversial issues or issues that they disagree with. So I, I just love that Chicago is, took a stand on something like this, and I hope other universities follow that. Yeah, and I just want to say this, we shouldn't say, you know, uh, too easily, the students, because right. these, there's a it really is a small group of people who are hyper radicalized and who think this kind of stuff is a good idea. Uh, at least at the university of Chicago, there are a lot of students. And I think at a lot of other schools who are there to get an education and 
they they don't want they don't want to see people getting shut down and canceled. They want to go to class and learn. They're there to be formed into adults, you know, and they want the administrators to act like adults and to treat them like adults. Uh, so I don't believe that all of the young people today are <laughs> crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to let them all in together. I think that it's, we've gotten into a culture where we're tolerating bad behavior and there's always people who are going to behave badly. The, the issue is that we need to not tolerate it. We need to say, no, that's bad. It's just like if your dog poops in the house, it's bad behavior. We don't accept that your dog each steals your steak. If you know, if your kid throws a temper tantrum, I mean, that's basically what's going on. This right. is the equivalent of the dog pooping in the house or the kid <laughs> having a temper tantrum. You're going to say, no, we don't accept that. That's not, that's, that's not how we do things in the country, in the University of Chicago. And uh, you've, you've got to behave if you want to be part of this society. Yeah, yeah. Let me know if you have to go, but I, I want to no, ask no, you. No rush, yeah. Okay, I wanted to spend just a few minutes. You've, you've got a, actually a really fascinating field of study. You've been working a lot on exoplanets and habitability. And I wanted yeah. to ask you just a little bit about that. Do you, are you studying them? Do you study them for the purposes of looking at possibly where the human race could go? Or do you look at, are you looking at extraterrestrial life? So we don't limit our... We study them to discover knowledge. Okay. In terms of potential uses, we don't we don't set a limit on that. Uh, I think what you should be aware of is that these planets are very, very, very far away. <laughs> right. <laughs> so we're not going to these planets. It's feasible that on some time scale, humans could, you know, who knows what in a thousand years what humans are going to be capable of but it's not me and you. Yeah. Uh, and we Speak should for yourself. I'm planning to live 10,000 years. <laughs> we shouldn't uh, screw up this planet and expect we could go to one of these other planets. So that, right. that's the essential thing that everyone should know. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think what's interesting to me is, is earth special? Is it, are we going to find a lot of planets like earth with life like earth or not? Uh, that is sort of a, a fundamental piece of data that will influence a lot of our understanding of ourselves. And that's really why I'm interested in it. And so Are, it's extraterrestrial life. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, what, that's what we would like to see. We'd like to constrain. Have you, found, have you found anything promising? Well, Okay, so I'm a theoretician, so I don't okay. find things. Gotcha. I come up with ideas and explain observations. But yeah, I mean, okay, so if you're thinking about extraterrestrial life, I would say in the solar system, right now, the people who are betting on this, they like Enceladus, which is a moon of Saturn, and Europa, which is a moon of Jupiter. They're icy moons. They're covered with many kilometers of ice, and there's a liquid water ocean underneath. And potentially, you could have life in those. So right now, the betting people are saying, you know, if there's life in the solar system, that's where it will be. And the way, the best way you could sample that is both of them have plumes, especially Enceladus. Because of all the tidal stresses, they have these volcanoes of water, they get spit into space. We could fly a spaceship through that 
and see what's in the water and maybe there'd be some life there. Mars could have especially fossilized life, old life. It doesn't seem like a very nice place to have life now and so far no one's found it, but maybe it's got fossilized life. An issue with Mars is there's actually something called panspermia where a little chunk of Mars could have uh, gotten knocked off Mars by an asteroid, fall on Earth and transfer life or the other way around. And so if we find life on Mars, it's, it could still be just like Earth life. Oh, interesting. So our life could have been started from Mars. Yes, or, or the Martian life could have come from Earth. It's actually a little easier to go from Mars to Earth because the escape velocity is smaller on Mars and because we're closer to the sun, so we're kind of downhill. But it could go either way. So how is it that we're able to study these planets that are so many light years away yeah. when we don't even really know? I mean, we're still exploring whether there was life on Mars, which is you know yeah. next door compared to these planets. Yeah. Okay. So I was just telling you the solar system story. And then yeah. as you point out, there's the extrasolar planets orbiting different stars. And the reason is if Mars were like Earth, we would know there's life on it. Yeah. Okay. So we're looking at other planets. If it's like Mars, we're not going to detect life. If it's like Europa or Enceladus, we're not going to detect life. I mean, underneath an ice layer. Right. But if it's like Earth, there could be signals in the atmosphere that would tell us that there's life. And one thing that I've been working on over the past few years in particular is to try to take a statistical approach. So not to look at planet, I mean, they have funny names. Their names are like Kepler 18729345C. Right, right. <laughs> they don't have pretty names. But so there's some planet X out there. So usually people are thinking, let's find planet X. It looks like Earth. Let's see if planet X has life on it. What are the steps we go through? Boop, 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 boop. Yes or no? What we've been proposing at University of Chicago, and it's caught on in some other groups too, in Arizona and in Washington, is we should try to come up with statistical tests to say like what fraction of planets might have life. And the reason that that's attractive is in the solar system, there's just a few planets. So we can design a bunch of instruments, uh, you know, send them to a planet a bunch of times and learn a lot of stuff about those few planets. But in exoplanets, we got a ton of planets, but each one we can only measure a little bit about. Right. And so it's sort of naturally the kind of system that you would want to do a statistical test. So we could say like, okay, Earth has remained habitable for 4 billion years because of this process. If this process is working on Earth-like planets, we can make a prediction for how the carbon dioxide will behave. Then we can test a bunch of these planets and see if the carbon dioxide behaves consistent with that prediction. And that will tell us if this process is general or not. So that's the sort of thing that we've been proposing. So do you lean one way or the other in terms of the question of is Earth special? Uh, well, so we had a debate about this. Uh, we, we had like an Oxford style debate five years ago. And I was on the, I was on the side, Earth is not special. That we'll find life in other places. And the specific question was by 2042, which was like 25 years in the future, I think at the right. time, will we have discovered convincing signs of life on an exoplanet? And on the, the pro side, we will have discovered, we prepared our response to the other side's argument. We didn't know the other side's argument, but we figured that they were going to argue, sure, there's life on all these planets, but, uh, but we won't be able to detect it because it's too hard to detect the life. 
But instead, they came out and they just argued that Earth is special. Okay. And they completely won the debate. So the way the debate works, everyone votes, the audience votes on the way in and the way out. Whoever moves them the most the wins. Difference. Right. And this is an example of changing your mind because someone has good arguments. And that really affected me. So for, for like six months, I was just mulling that over. How did we lose? And uh, why did those smart people make those arguments? Right. For my colleagues. Uh, and eventually, I started to find them more convincing. And the arguments that they made were basically that uh, there seems to have only been one origin of life on Earth. Now, you could say once it got started, it was hard to happen again because the already existing life outcompeted the life that existed. And that's an argument, but they basically argued that that argument isn't that strong. So we should have had multiple origins of life if it's so easy to get life going. And then the argu other argument they made is that people have been trying to simulate something like the origin of life in the laboratory for 80 years, 100 years, and no one's getting anywhere close. Right. And they're reproducing what we, the best, you know, the most similar conditions we can imagine for early Earth and for the most favorable conditions to start life. Uh, and just no one's getting anywhere. So maybe it's a lot harder than people think. Now, those aren't slam dunk arguments, but those are the arguments they use that shook me from thinking that there's probably going to be life everywhere and made me much more uncertain. I think it's a distinct possibility that there isn't that much life in the universe or maybe no other life. There was also a paper that really influenced me about, so there's this thing called the Fermi paradox. Right. You know, if there's aliens, where are they? Right. You know, they should have come visit us by now. And uh, there was a paper that came out five years or so that basically argued, if we make our best estimate on all of the parameters in this thing called the Drake equation, yes, we would expect to have life. But it turns out if we put our uncertainty on them realistically, and we acknowledge how uncertain we are about some of them, we have like a 50% chance that there's no life in the universe. <laughs> because wow. we're really, really uncertain about the origin of life and some of the other processes, that one in particular. And so that made me think like, okay, maybe it's like even odds or something. You know, I went from thinking we'll probably find life to thinking we really don't have a very good way to guess. <laughs> right. Just who knows. <laughs> We're going to have to get collect the data and see what the data says. Right. How much weight do you give to any of these arguments about, you know, one, you know, maybe other life is so advanced that we're just not even of interest to them uh, or, or that they're so advanced that we can't even see them. You know, it's like a, an ant doesn't notice a skyscraper in that yeah. sense, like that, that they're, you know, the life is just around us and we're just too small to see it. Yeah, it's possible. It's possible. I mean, on, in the Earth context, people talk about a dark biosphere. And so this is in response to this question of why is Earth only evolved life once? Well, they say, well, there could be other types of life that is so different, we don't even know how to notice it. It's right. all around us. And that's possible. Uh, and the argument you just made about, I think this is in Star Wars, right? Like they leave us alone. Like we're, they leave Star Trek. Alone. Yes, it's the Star uh, Trek. Okay. Right. right. I'm, I forget the name of the principle, but yeah, basically, yeah, don't don't interact or interrupt. It's similar to like Kant's categorical. Yeah, yeah, like similar. Right, right, right. Anyways, I'm not. Yeah, yes, yeah, it's, it's like the prime. Oh, the prime directive is that? Yeah, that? something like that. Yeah. So, 
Yeah, that's possible. We don't know. Uh, if that's the case, though, you would think that there would be other life out there that we could find. Right. And maybe by the time we find it, they'll tell us, hey, leave them alone. Right. So it's still something that should be subject to empirical test eventually. Right. And then the other, the other big argument I've heard is, I forget who came up with the name, but the great filter hypothesis, which yeah, is yeah, just yeah, that yeah, yeah. once life reaches a certain level of complexity, it ends up destroying itself, you know, basically like nuclear war. I mean, we, we might get so advanced and we might get close to finding other life, but we end up blowing ourselves up because of that. Right. So there's some, so let's assume there's some great filter, right? So we don't see life contacting us. So there has to be some filter. Now, maybe the filter is uh, life kills itself. Maybe the filter is that life never becomes intelligent. So like there's going to be a lot of cows out there, but not a lot of humans. Right. Maybe the filter is life never becomes animal. Maybe it's that it never becomes multicellular. Maybe it's that life never originates. So we don't know the filter. But the interesting thing is the more we push that filter forward. So if we find evidence that it's really common to have animals, but not humans, the more likely it is that the filter is in front of us. <laughs> so the most optimistic thing is to have that filter as far back as possible. Right, like right. life never originated because if there's a lot of life that's animals and not a, we don't find a lot of us's, that, that would increase the probability that us's kill themselves off. Right. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, we, yeah, that's, yeah, we want to be past the filter so that we know we're exactly. safe. We want yeah. to be past the filter yeah. in terms yeah. of long-term survival of the human race. Oh, that's interesting. Is, is there any study of, is, are we only looking for carbon-based life forms? Because we, that's, that's all we know. We don't know that life can exist any other way, but yeah. there's a possibility. I mean, why couldn't life exist another way? Uh, okay. but, so there, so the main way that the, okay, so there's a whole field of astrobiology, people thinking about this, trying to do the detections, figuring out how you would detect, and it dates to the mid 20th century, really, when it's really gets started. And the search, the way the search has been conceptualized, the idea is, well, we're not even sure we could tell, no one can give you a good definition of life. We don't have a good definition of life yet. I mean, that's, that's actually a fundamental part of the problem. So if we found life that was so different from Earth that we didn't recognize that it was life, then like that wouldn't be very useful to us. Right, right. How do we know that wasn't just an abiotic process? Right. So we have to start looking for life that's similar enough to Earth's life that we would know that it's life when we look at it. And then we say, well, what's essential for Earth life is liquid water. So we're going to start looking for liquid water on the surface. And that will be, we'll call that habitable, potentially habitable planet as liquid water on the surface. So that's sort of the context that most of these searches are conducted in. And in particular, if we're looking at an exoplanet, it has to, if we're going to look at the gases in an atmosphere and try to figure out if there's life, life better be doing a whole lot to change the gases in the atmosphere. Otherwise, we're not going to be able to tell. Right. And so we really need some life on the surface that's getting sunlight and uses the energy and can use that to mess around with the gases. Now, there have been some people. So um, the big person leading this effort is Sarah Seeger at MIT. 
who have been trying to figure out, like, what about a whole bunch of other gases that could potentially be signs of life, even life that's not Earth-like, you know? Uh, and so people are thinking about that, but the problem with that is there's like a million, literally a million other gases. And so how are you going to figure out which ones could be signs of life and which ones couldn't? So right. they're trying to do that, but it's a hard game. Right. And I think the most convincing thing to people would be if we found something Earth-like. So, I mean, the, the biggest thing, starting sign would be oxygen. A very oxygenated atmosphere on a planet like Earth orbiting a sun like the star would be a big, uh, people would be happy. Yeah. Now, of course, if it's a different kind of planet orbiting a different kind of star, they wouldn't be as happy. And then you want to look for other things like methane and right amount of CO2, things like that. What are your thoughts on on Elon Musk and what he's doing? I mean, his his big thing is trying to colonize Mars. If you know, if you had two hundred billion dollars and you would you're doing something in this space, what would you be doing with that two hundred billion dollars? Would it look like what Elon's doing? Would it be something completely different? I I you know it's I, I don't know I don't know. We're we're very different types of thinkers. Yeah, uh, I'm much more scientific and philosophical. And he's much more practical, so it really makes sense. <laughs> I mean, I, oh, only only a theoretical uh, uh, professor can say Elon Musk is practical, because to everyone else, he looks insane talking about colonizing Mars. No, but like he makes rock, he builds rockets right. and they work. Right. You know, like he he builds cars and they work. He's an engineer, so he's he's like a very practical thinker. Oh, that's interesting. And, that's an interesting uh, way to think about it. Yeah. Well, I think we just have different perspectives, and I've never really thought of what I would do with two hundred billion dollars. <laughs> Are you excited by what he's doing? Like, does that do you follow that closely? Is that of interest to you? Not super closely, but I'm aware that you know he he wants to die on Mars, not on impact. <laughs> right. I love that and line. It seems good to me. I mean, the, there are some people who are worried about ethical implications if there is or could be life on Mars of colonizing it. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I haven't thought enough about that issue to really say. Yeah. And it's, you know, like, it seems good that he's trying to do something useful with his fortune, right? Right, right. Well, I mean, I, you could say, like, compare it with Gates. Like, that, I guess that's the real question, right? Like, is Musk doing something useful with his fortune compared to someone like Gates? Right. I think that's a debate. I mean, Musk would say we're in an extremely precarious situation as a human species because one asteroid could wipe us out. So I'm trying, you know, like you could focus on improving poverty if you think like on a decadal scale, but I'm thinking on a millennial scale. Yeah. And I'm really trying to help human race. And so he has an argument. Uh, but on the other hand, you could say you're really, really rich and there are a lot of people suffering and, you know, why aren't you helping them more? So both sides have an argument. I don't know. Yeah, I, I, and I think the answer is just you got to let people do what they're passionate about because that's where they're going to do the best work. You know, Elon, yeah. Elon's passionate about this thousand year plan. And so yeah. that's where he's really going to be able to do the most because that's what he really wants to invest himself in. And let Bill Gates and the other guys do the stuff that they're interested in. And it's great that there's so many different people with so many different interests. And we live in a free society. Yeah. And all of those people made their money legally. And they get to decide what to do with it. Right, them. right. So, you know, that's, that's life. If you don't like it, 
too bad for you. Exactly. Exactly. Well, hey, Dorian Abbott, I could talk to you all night about this, but I'm glad yeah. you're able to, to go back to doing what you do because you're doing fascinating work. So I'm, I'm glad you can hopefully focus on that now going forward. I appreciate you fighting the good fight and more people need to do it because it it takes courage. It, it's it's scary to be in, in the position that you were in and it does take courage. And there's a lot of people who have been in a similar position who had the means to, to fight and didn't and just, you know, they, they bowed down to the mob and they, they made a half-hearted forced apology and that's a mistake. Yeah, it is. It's an absolute mistake. And, and it breaks my heart every time I see something like that. And when, when I see something like your story, I mean, the first time I read your story, I, I said, I have to talk to this guy. Cause, cause it just, it gives me hope. And I, and stories like yours need to be as promoted as possible because that's the only way that we can, remain a free society that's the only way we can keep doing what made us a great society which was free discussion free debate that that open discourse and pursuing knowledge pursuing truth pursuing reason so i thank you so much for what you've done and what you're doing i, I really do appreciate it and thanks for talking to me yeah thanks and thanks for your show and we had a fun conversation but this last thing you just said i think is really important because you know my whole life i thought Oh, you know, like, oh yeah, free, you know, you got to pay free. You, we have to be willing to stand up for freedom, whatever, whatever, that kind of thing. And you don't realize that it could happen in your generation too. Yeah. It's not just something from the history books. Like there can be people trying to really restrict our society, lead us down the wrong path. And all of us have to be ready when the time comes to stand up and to resist that. Yeah. That's that. Uh, I can't put it any better than that, that your times, you never know when your time's going to come to stand up and you just have to be ready to, to be brave. And, and again, the more people hear stories like yours, I think the more courage it gives people to, to know that, Hey, if, if he can do it, I can do it. So and there's a, there's a critical point, right? You can cancel one. you can, it's like whack-a-mole. You can get one <laughs> guy here, here, but if all the moles come up at once, you can't yep. get them all. Yep. So if, if people want to follow you and, and keep up with what you're doing and talking about, where can they find you? I have a Twitter account now. So it's at Dorian Abbott. Great. You can find me there. Or you can send me an email. Yeah. And, and I, I think a lot of people are like Twitter in some ways, I, I hate it because of it allows mob attacks like what happened to you. But that is right now, it is the town square. So I think it's good to be there and to get this message out, to have some, have some good positivity on there to counter everything else that's going on yeah i also decided if anytime somebody's getting canceled that you know is vaguely in my field or i know about i'm just going to write a message yeah. in the middle of the cancellation saying you know whatever whatever offense or supposed offense happened here th this isn't a fair way to deal with it or yeah. some various variant on that you know the the person in our society a part of justice is that the offender has to have a fair trial in some sense, a fair hearing with due process yep. and just mobbing people and trying to get them fired with no sort of process is not, is not fair and it's not appropriate. So I'm yeah. going to try to post something like that and maybe it will at least make people think twice or maybe they'll just hate me even more. <laughs> it doesn't well, really matter. Well, but again, I, there's power in numbers. So the more people who do that, I, I think the, the, the better it is. So I just hope people follow your lead. Yeah. Hey, Dorian, I appreciate it. Thanks so much. Have a good night. Awesome.